0: And we're excited that you have joined us today. Um, I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. As we start 2022, we've now entered a new phase of the pandemic with Omicron causing more COVID-19 cases than we've ever seen, and hospitalizations are also on the rise. Fortunately, you're in for a great presentation today with our excellent faculty, who will do their best to make sense of it all. For those of you that may be joining us for the first time, welcome. If you've participated in some of our over 150 webcasts on this important topic, we welcome you back. Uh, we've been developing COVID education since March of 2020 and nearly two years later, we're incredibly grateful for all of the progress that we have all made in managing patients during this pandemic. Okay, so here are those great faculty I mentioned earlier. For those of you who have been with us since last year, you'll recognize them. And for our new learners, please meet Dr. Angaroni and Dr. Safo. So uh, Dr. Angaroni and Dr. Safo, thank you so much for joining.
1: Happy to be back. Thank Thank you for for having
0: me. me. These are our faculty's disclosures today. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Um, Please note that the material is presented in this program is current as of today, February 3rd of 2022, uh, the date of the recording. So um, for the most contemporary guidance, please do review the NIH and IDSA treatment guidelines. Today's learning objectives are to describe the mechanisms of action, indications for, and clinical trial data for various monoclonal antibodies under EUA investigation for treating COVID-19. We're also going to appraise the best opportunities for application of monoclonal antibodies to treat patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 and describe the effect of specific viral variants on monoclonal antibodies. I will hand this back off to uh, Dr. Safo um, as she presents a case to us.
2: Thank you. Hi everyone. So we're going to be talking today about Omicron and the therapeutics that are able to um, appropriately treat it. And to kind of ground us in the real world, we wanted to present a patient case of Bob and Janet. So Bob is a 70 year old man who was evaluated at the primary care clinician's office, and he has a history of lung cancer for which he's receiving radiation and chemotherapy. His symptoms are sore throat, cough and fever of two days duration. Um, His O2 set on room air is 96%, and his um, nasopharyngeal swab for SARS-CoV-2 is indeed positive. So that's Bob's situation. But Bob also has a sister, Janet, who is 68 years old, and she lives nearby. She's a patient in the same office, and she's been fully vaccinated, including her booster. But she has leukemia and is immunosuppressed. She's not visited her brother or seen anyone in months, apart from kind of essential travel, like going to the grocery store, etc. So keeping Bob and Janet in mind, we wanted to speak to you today about what was happening with SARS-CoV-2, specifically thinking about uh, the new variant with Omicron. And so the emergence of Omicron kind of brings us to a place where we have to really think about what we know that works for COVID, what we are developing against COVID, and hopefully um, what is 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 kind of, you know, going to be the the... The preference for how we treat COVID, which is preventing individuals from getting infected anyway through vaccination and other measures. And so, talking about Omicron, um, which is known in the literature as B11529, for the US, um, our timeline kind of happened towards the end of November. And many of you will remember as we geared up for the holidays, news of this new variant. So, November 24, 2021. The world health organization referred it as, reported its first case and those cases were coming out of botswana in south africa November 11th botswana through its detection mechanisms reported um, that they found a new variant of concern november 14 south africa did the same what is interesting with this um, identification here is that these are areas because of hiv and other infectious diseases that have a very robust genomics um, sequencing program throughout the country. And so they just happened to be kind of ahead of the curve in really being able to find this variant and sound the alarm. Um, and they were able to kind of get the world ready. once we were primed and looking for this many other places found this variant of Omicron very, very quickly. November 26 2021 um, uh, the the current variant B11529 was designated as Omicron and was designated as a variant of concern by the WHO and the U.S. SARS-CoV-2 integrase group, SIG. Um, And so by the time that that happened, many public health uh, bodies around the world were preparing for what was looking like it was going to be a major surge. By December 1st, 2021, the U.S. had identified its first case in California. We'll talk about some of what happened pretty quickly after that. What is very interesting about Omicron, and, and this graphic from the CDC is one that's really important to take a look at, is the rapidity of it taking over as the predominant case or variant of, of SARS-CoV-2 that we were identifying. If you look at the kind of bottom of this slide, you see that in about October, we were looking primarily at SARS-CoV-2 that was b B16122, which was the Delta variant. And that had been predominant pretty much up until November Um, through November in the US. And what you start to see starting in early December um, is the kind of purple that comes in and that's Omicron. So yellow is Delta, purple is Omicron. And you start to see that at first it makes up maybe 60% of cases. And within the span of one week, it starts to make up about 80% of cases. And then over time, by the time we hit January, Omicron is a predominant variant that we are seeing in many, many places. It is worth noting that there is a time lag in this for diff or rather a geographic lag for different areas. There are some areas who experienced this kind of oversurgence of Omicron very early, like the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic regions. And there are others that kind of lagged behind a few weeks and those tended to be kind of the Midwest Southern regions. Um, and that has to do a little bit with the epidemiology of how the virus was, was able to, how this latest variant rather was able to spread. And so from there, what we kind of saw was a tremendous impact on the seven day average of cases, tests, hospitalizations, and deaths. And so let's kind of go through this. So over the summer months, um, we saw, I'll kind of start from the middle. If you remember after we did a, a, a series of campaigns around vaccination, we saw a blip with um, the Delta variant from about June to October. And before that, going from about October 2020 to about February 2021, this was really pre-vaccination of a tremendous amount of the population. We had seen a blip in cases then as well. And so if you kind of acknowledge those two times as you know two of the surges within the US's experience of this pandemic, and then you move over towards the end of this graph and you compare what has happened with Omicron. And, you know, we talked a lot in the beginning of this, um, pandemic about flattening the curve and people have joked that Omicron in some cases did flatten the curve. It just flattened it along the Y axis, because what you can see happening, starting from November, 2021, yeah, November, 2021 is an incredible increase in seven day average of cases, um, so fast that it completely obliterated the number of cases that we were seeing again in our prior to kind of closer surges that we had observed. And if you go down to the lower graphs in gray, what you're seeing is um, what we've learned about COVID, which is what happens around testing, hospitalization, and deaths. And so testing increases as we see an increase in cases. People have symptoms, they go in and they get tested. Hospitalizations lag slightly. They lag for about two two to three weeks. And that's in part um, what we've kind of expected to see. With Omicron, there's some interesting data around hospitalizations because people are vac- vaccinated and the immunogen- the immunogenicity seems to be a little bit different with this variant. And so the hospitalizations have been a little bit different than we had expected. But again, there's that slight lag in hospitalizations. And then same thing for deaths. You'll see deaths kind of trend up with each surge that you have. And so Omicron, for the most part, kind of followed what we had seen in prior surges. But the kind of takeaway from here is that it was so significantly exacerbated in terms of the number of cases and the kind of response that it really did elicit among the population. And it's worth talking about why that happened. And so we have all heard probably ad nauseum discussions about different parts of SARS-CoV-2 virus, specifically the spike protein. So if you take a look at Delta, you take a look at, at Omicron. Delta was, you know, before Omicron, the variant that we all talked about. And we talked about it because there were mutations in the virus that allowed it to be more severe, more infectious. What is very interesting about omicron is that it carries over 50 mutations and over 30 of those are in the spike protein and the reason why this matters is that the sars cov-2 receptor that allows it to have a binding domain to enter the human uh cells and these cells are the ace 2 receptor cells that happens through that specific area with the spike protein and it's very important in order for it to enter our bodies through the nasopharynx and lungs for that spike protein to be able to kind of evade our, our previous immune response. And so um, part of the reason why COVID has been so deadly is that no one before you know 20, December 2019, when it was first identified in China, had ever seen this particular uh, form or, or a version of the coronavirus. And so there was no way to have your body provide immunity. Over time, because individuals have been infected with COVID and because individuals have been vaccinated, There is quite a good amount of protection when you do see the latest version of SARS-CoV-2 virus. However, Omicron's mutations, again over 30 mutations in the spike protein area alone, has had real impact because what it has meant is that it has allowed this this current variant to actually um, evade our current defenses, which include neutralizing antibodies and T-cell mediated response. And Again, that hasn't been kind of across everyone. There's some folks who have still mounted a very good response, but this is why that previous graph that I just showed shows such a dramatic increase is because this this current variant has really been able to evade the way that we have offered protections historically. And so we've learned quite a bit and we wanna turn to a, a case study, a case series of a cohort that tells us a little bit more about what happens when populations are infected. As I mentioned, the first case of Omicron was detected in the U.S. in December, on December 1st, 2021. That was a a fully vaccinated individual who had traveled to South Africa, come back into California November 22nd and started developing symptoms, went to the hospital and was identified to have have Omicron. Um, And the person ended up having a very mild course, but that was the first kind of case that we saw. And what Kaiser Permanente's health system did was actually take a look at um, all of its patient pop, its 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 COVID cases from about November 30th all the way through December to understand what happened um, as this new variant really took over. And they did genomic analysis. And what you'll see here with the gray and the pink, let me orient you, um, where it says SGTF, that denotes S gene target failure, which is a proxy for this new variant, Omicron, and no SGTF as kind of all other cases or or predominantly Delta. And so over this time period of about a month um, and change, they found about 52,000 cases of Omicron and they found about 16,000 cases of Delta. And what you can see is there's that kind of inflection point where over about, if you look at about December 14th, the Omicron cases start to rise and kind of continue to rise. And so what this study did was to really try to understand the natural history of Omicron infection for those who were all comers, vaccinated, unvaccinated. And there's some very, very interesting results that we can get into that um, I think has led to the, the lay phrase that quote unquote Omicron is mild um, or Omicron is, hasn't been as, as deadly um, as other versions of, of, of Delta, that, of COVID rather, that we have seen. And so in this slide, we can kind of talk about what we saw by numbers. And so of the 52,000 individuals who had Omicron among this study population, what they ended up, uh, excuse me, among this population, they found that about 235 of them um, ended up being hospitalized. And those who had Delta, the 16,000 who had Delta, about 232 were hospitalized. So the the, the percentage for those populations is only about 0.5% of individuals who had Omicron ended up being hospitalized, and about 1.3% of individuals who had Delta ended up being hospitalized, which is a 53% risk reduction for Omicron cases versus Delta cases for hospitalization. And what you'll see in these graphs are further indications, again, of the reduced severity of of Omicron compared to Delta. For ICU admissions, that was 74% risk reduction for those who had Omicron versus Delta. Mortality was reduced by 91% for those who had Omicron, mechanical ventilation, no individuals who were diagnosed with Omicron ended up requiring mechanical intervention. And those individuals who did go to the hospital with Omicron um, who needed a hospital stay, stayed for about 3.4 days shorter than those who had Delta. And so it's from studies like this and this kind of evaluation of these populations of comparing Omicron to Delta that allowed us to understand that truly, it seems as though from a population perspective, that individuals who were getting Omicron, especially those who were vaccinated, seemed to do fairly well in terms of their disease course, in terms of needing hospitalization, mechanical ventilation, and then you know pr- uh, pr- progressing through to death. Omicron overall seemed to be less severe than previous cases of COVID that we had seen. It's important to note that while that is the case, Not all populations are the same. And so those who are high risk, and we can look at populations like pregnant individuals, populations who are immune compromised, et cetera, regardless of the the variant of COVID that they're getting, there's still very, very major concerns that their disease course will not be quite as mild, quote unquote, as, as other individuals who may not have some of those risk factors. And this brings us to a place of really thinking about what we know about the clinical progression. And so I'm gonna offer you some guidance for what we understand pre-Omicron and kind of what we've learned um, uh, through Omicron that has changed. And so we know that with previous versions of COVID that um, when you're exposed, it's anywhere from a from a three to four day incubation period before you start showing symptoms. Your symptoms will be fever, cough, Malaysia, dyspnea, or can be pretty mild. Um, some individuals around day seven onward may actually get worse so those are the individuals who will have respiratory failure hypotension sepsis requiring hospitalization they may go into the hospital progress to ards require mechanical ventilation in the icu stay um, and you know kind of things progress from there and um if if that isn't the kind of you know uh progression what will happen for most individuals is that by day 10 you've experienced this disease and you're you're better, and you're also no longer infectious. Um, and that infectious period is incredibly important because that's been some of the conversation we've had in the public health world about when people can kind of be around other individuals once they've had COVID. There's a caveat on all of this that for individuals who are immune suppressed, um, there is a difference in our understanding of how long the disease course can remain for some individuals. This can be up to three to four weeks or longer. And those individuals, those individuals can actually remain infectious. Um, And then, so where kind of Omicron lays over on this is that Omicron's incubation period was much shorter, it was about two days. And its 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 symptoms when it did present was anything from um, sore throat, headaches, fevers. It didn't have quite as much of the as of the lower pulmonary symptoms that we had seen with Delta and, and other versions of COVID. The progression of symptoms seemed to take about five to seven days, again. Previous version seemed to take anywhere from five to ten days. And because individuals with Omicron tended to be, because we vaccinated over 70% of the population, individuals with Omicron tended to be closer to or, or more likely to be to be vaccinated. There was the kind of belief that if after five days most people are feeling better, they should be able to kind of come back out of, you know, isolation and shouldn't be infectious. There's many, many caveats to that. But really the takeaway from here is that what you're seeing on here which is a clinical course of, of you know, COVID-19, Omicron is kind of compressed and shortened it along the way. With that in mind, it means that the times that we have or the time that we have to give the therapeutics to help for those who are going to have a, a severe progression of disease is, is also shorter for Omicron. So antivirals and monoclonal antibodies are all medications that are really given in that outpatient early period of infection before individuals get much sicker and end up in the hospital and then need, again, immunomodulators. So keeping that in mind, um, you can kind of you know remind ourselves of what we know about COVID-19's clinical course, that most individuals will have mild to moderate symptoms, about 81%. Some will have severe symptoms, um, which is like dyspnea, hypoxia, again, uh, bilateral involvement of the lungs leading to ARDS, about 14%. And some individuals will be critical, um, experiencing shock, and multi-organ dysfunction, about 5%. Those numbers, again, are somewhat attenuated with Omicron. And for those who are vaccinated, hospitalizations have changed. And so individuals that are vaccinated who have breakthrough COVID are only hospitalized uh, or of that population, only about 2% of those individuals need to be hospitalized. individuals that are not vaccinated, though, that's as high as as 10%. And that number is even higher if you're not vaccinated and you're older. And so this is where a lot of the push from public health officials and clinicians continues to come from, is that we know that there's such an impressive difference with vaccination status on on the clinical course of disease. And there's an understanding of who those high-risk individuals are according to different levels of, of data. So we've used meta-analyses in some cases, cohort studies, case series studies, but we have a sense that those individuals who are at high risk for severe disease include individuals with cancer, cerebrovascular disease, CKD, COPD, um, those with certain lifestyle uh, challenges like smoking, individuals who are obese, individuals who are pregnant or recently pregnant, and those with diabetes. And then there's some special disease states, again, that we tend to um, have kind of expected and that we have seen pan out have slightly worse courses or, or be at risk for severe disease. And that includes individuals who are on immunosuppressive medications, those with sickle cell disease, those with HIV, which is the population that I work with. Um, and then there's some mixed evidence around what happens with those with asthma, hypertension, and other immune deficiencies. For the most part, though, there is an understanding that chronic illness sets you up for potential more severe um, disease course with COVID-19. And we can really see that um, in this risk of death analysis that we can look at both by age and comorbidities. And so it is now a common and accepted knowledge that as you get older, your chances of dying from COVID do increase. And so those who are younger, as you can see, chances of mortality from COVID um, goes anywhere from about 2.2 all the way up to, to 10 And so what is so interesting about that is that it's just a straight correlation. The older you are, the higher your chance of complications um, from COVID-19. And so it is part of the reason why, you know, vaccine rollouts happen first for that age population, boosters are encouraged for that population, and we kind of keep a particular eye. The impact is a little bit less stark if you look at certain comorbidities, including diabetes, chronic kidney disease, um, COPD, neurocognitive disorders, etc. And that, that relative risk is anywhere from 1.1 1, 1. 1 to about 1. 1.2, 1.3. Again, what really is interesting about this is that if you start to add the factors together, so someone who is both older, let's say 65 and up, and has at least one comorbidity or more, then their chances, again, of death from COVID, including from Omicron, Omicron, can really be increased, and the kind of final graphic at the bottom of this slide really illustrates that, that those who have no additional chronic conditions um, are at a baseline risk, and as you add on the, the numbers of chronic conditions, your risk of death once you contract COVID increases quite significantly. So we want to kind of draw your attention to, I think, a very important uh, point to make as we talk about this, which is that we're defining uh, risk by disease state and by age. And it's very important to also de- define it by race and ethnicity. We learned early on in the pandemic that those who are from different racial and ethnic groups had different experiences across um, chances of catching COVID. So cases, chances of going to the hospital from COVID and chances of dying once in the hospital. And we really want to draw your attention um, to, you know, these kind of four examples with the comparison group being white, non-Hispanic individuals. If you look particularly, um, I'm going to call out American Indian, Alaska Native and Black Black or African American. You'll see here that in terms of cases, at least for African-Americans, while that's gone down to about um, close to what the references group is, um, there's quite a, an increase in cases for other populations like American Indian and, and Hispanic or Latino. For hospitalizations and death throughout the pandemic, that has remained high for these high-risk groups. And it's anywhere from as, as you know twice as likely that individuals will be hospitalized to three times as likely. And of course, you want to look at death. The rate of death for high-risk groups can go up as, as high as two times likely than the reference group if you're Black, American Indian, and Alaska Native or Hispanic or Latino American. And so that kind of brings us to an interesting correlate of well, what happened with Asians who are non-Hispanic. And you know, this is where I think there's a real story around um, vaccinations because that difference we believe is being accounted for by the tremendous um, uptake of vaccinations among this population. And so you'll see in this slide that while the majority of the population is anywhere from 54 to 60 percent and so i'll kind of take you through this bottom number here are black americans this second to the second line from the bottom are hispanic um, and the third line up are white americans that line that rises up it's a light blue those are asian americans and so they are you know about 20 percentage points above most of where Um, other populations are we believe that that does attenuate their overall risk from cases hospitalization and death what is interesting also about this graphic is to see the ways in which vaccine uptake has actually improved over time and so what started off as pretty significant differences by race um, by 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 race if you take a look into april 2021 you can see that the the differences the kind of gaps by racial group were really really wide over time, through the work of different advocates, different policy measures, etc., we have been able to sl- slightly kind of reduce those uh, racial and ethnic gaps. The hope now is that we can actually take all the three groups on the bottom and really increase them up to where we have our Asian American group at, um, because you know the kind of widening has really started to have to have this curve get a bit stagnant. And as I've shown you guys, you know earlier, vaccinations and preventing infection is one of the best tools that we have in our toolkit as we kind of prepare for what may be the next wave and and, and the next variant that, that may come down the pike. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Angaroni, to go ahead and tell us a little bit more about antibody treatments.
1: Thank you, Dr. Sappho, for that, I think, wonderful overview of uh, Omicron and The impact that Omicron has had on uh, SARS-CoV-2, on COVID, uh, on our patients and and how we really kind of look at um, uh, this infection now. And then I really um, uh, like the overview of uh, some of the epidemiology, especially the differences Uh, between different um, uh, uh, ethnic and racial groups um, uh, regarding infection and vaccine. So now we'll move on to antibody treatments. And so antibody treatments have really been the mainstay of our um, outpatient armamentarium and, and what we've really used to help keep people out of the hospital. When we think of the antibody treatments, I think it's most important to start thinking about Um, The treatments as um, how they work, how they function, how they're created. Um, And really what we're going to be focusing on are the monoclonal antibodies. And so these are antibodies that have been uh, developed uh, to target specific aspects of the spike protein. Each one of these monoclonals that are listed on this slide um, bind to the spike protein, but bind in a slightly different way with different affinity or, or other different features in the antibody. But I think it's important to remember these are manufactured to be the same. The, the bamlanivimab product is the same uh, throughout all the different doses, the cassiavirumab, the adesivimab, et cetera. Much different than the convalescent plasma that we were talking about. Uh, I think, kind of earlier in the pandemic, which is uh, collected plasma from individuals who have SARS-CoV-2, um, and then we kind of purify or isolate the uh, antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, but they could have all different types of binding affinity and binding characteristics. So I think this is what's really important about these monoclonal antibodies. Um, another aspect that's extremely important about these antibodies is how do we utilize them? How do we think about them uh, when it comes to treatment? Uh, And we often think about monoclonals or or any sort of antiviral medication as kind of the right drug, right time, right patient. When we're thinking about um, the patient, we want to be able to select those patients that are going to benefit the most from our treatment. We know as Dr. Safo reviewed that 80% of the individuals that uh, uh, become infected with SARS-CoV-2 are going to have a mild course. They're not going to come to the hospital. They're not going to need hospitalization, and they're going to get better without treatment. The problem is, is how do we identify those other uh, 20%? And then it becomes really critical to try to get those individuals into therapy as soon as possible. So these monoclonals, as well as Uh, Some of the antivirals that are being looked at. uh, Timing is critical. Getting the treatment to the patient as soon as possible. And then we also have to realize that some of those individuals that we treat, their illness will continue to progress, no matter what treatment that we've given them. And this becomes really difficult when thinking about what patients should we target for therapy? How do we decide which patients um, we should prioritize? Should we just give it to every uh, patient? And we'll talk about that uh, in a bit with the monoclonals, how the CDC, the FDA, and, and everyone that's practicing is really trying to hone in on who's gonna benefit the most from these treatments. But we also have to take the virus itself into consideration. So viruses replicate very quickly. Each one of us that becomes infected can have millions upon millions upon millions of viral particles uh, within our system, um, uh, within us, and that leads to changes and mutations in the virus. And so within a community or different communities, there may be monoclonal antibodies or treatments that work in some areas and they're less effective in others. Um, There's escape mutants that can develop. So Dr. Saffo mentioned uh, caring for HIV or other immune suppressed, especially in light of Omicron um, kind of being first recognized in South Africa where you have a lot of individuals with uh, uh, HIV infection. Immune compromised individuals can harbor the virus for longer and that virus can replicate for longer. So within an individual, you can get changes, which then can translate into changes um, throughout the communities themselves. So these become very critical, very crucial aspects um, to treatment and to remember how effective and how meaningful these monoclonal antibodies uh, may be. And this can be seen when we start talking about the variants and what we've learned from the variants as we've really started to track them um, I think much more effectively uh, over the past uh, uh, year and a half. And so we can see all the antibodies that have been approved uh, uh, through FDA EUAs the bamlanivimab, eticivimab, cassiovirimab, and divimab, uh, the satorbimab, and then the uh, tixagevimab, uh, silgavimab antibodies all uh, were effective against alpha we lost bamlanivimab edesivimab with uh, beta and gamma. And many of you may have experienced kind of the uh, restriction on usage of the bamlanivimab edesivimab kind of in the uh, uh, late winter of 2021 uh, into the spring of 2021. And then we had delta. And so as delta arose, um, we were worried about Delta, concerned about Delta, but all the monoclonal antibodies actually had some activity, and we started to see a return of the bamlanivimab, edesivimab, as well as the others. Omicron has really changed this in that um, the antibodies we were using the most, the bamlanivimab, edesivimab, and casirivimab and divimab, have no activity against this variant, and we're really left with the satorvimab as therapy. And then the uh, texagivimab and the silgavimab uh, as kind of a pre-exposure prophylaxis or passive immunity, um, which we'll talk about uh, in a bit. Um, I think this is a great resource for uh, anyone out there that's practicing that wants to know can I use an antibody in my area, or are we starting to see variants where these monoclonal antibodies may not be as effective? Uh, The link that's on the slide, the opendata.ncats.nih.gov has a nice tool where you can really see the effectiveness or lack of efficacy of the monoclonal antibodies against different variants. This is Omicron with uh, the monoclonal antibodies that are either uh, FDA EUA approved or are, are in study. And you can see that the satorbimab still has activity, but when you look at antibodies like the a Civimab, there's really no activity. There's a loss of activity against the virus itself. And so this is a, a nice resource for those of you that are practicing that want to know, can I use uh, the monoclonal antibody in my area? So, even though uh, some of the monoclonals that we utilize are no longer recommended, I think it's important to talk about the data uh, behind these antibodies and what effect these monoclonal antibodies have had. And so we'll start with Bamlinivimab edesivimab. Uh, this uh, antibody combination was studied in BLAZE-1, which was a phase three uh, randomized control trial in mod- mild to moderate COVID-19. Uh, individuals. Uh, There was around 1,000 patients within this study. They were randomized to the monoclonal antibody or to placebo. Um, The population was diverse with 29% Latinx and 8% uh, Black. Uh, Median age was 56 with 31% over the age of 65. Uh, The main outcome was hospitalization or death uh, after receipt of the monoclonal antibody. Um, And we can see that the bamlanivimab eticivimab. Uh, resulted in a 70% reduction in hospitalization or death within uh, 28 days after receipt of the antibody versus placebo. So 7% in the placebo, 2% in the bamlanivimab adesivimab. There were no deaths in the treatment arm. There were 10 in the placebo arm. And there was also a greater and more rapid decline in the virus levels within the treatment arm as well. Um, This monoclonal antibody combination did receive FDA EUA at the 2,800 milligram dosage. Um, A lower dose was studied, but that is not authorized um, uh, uh, for treatment. And right now, this antibody is not recommended for treatment because of its lack of efficacy against Omicron. But again, the data for uh, this antibody shows that these antibodies are effective against SARS-CoV-2. Another monoclonal uh, that we've seen is Casirivimab and divimab. Again, a large phase three trial of around 4,000 patients that were at high risk for complications uh, related to COVID, uh, uh, over 50% having obesity, over a third with cardiovascular disease. Again, a population that, had, uh, that was diverse with 35% uh, Latinx, 5% Black. Uh, again, the, uh, main outcome of the study was COVID related hospitalization or death within 28 days of receipt of either the treatment or placebo. This study was unique in that it looked at two different doses of the casiovirumab and dibumab, uh, antibody, 2,400 milligrams or 1200 milligrams, um, both doses were actually found to be effective at reducing. COVID-related hospitalization or death, so both were 70% effective at uh, uh, reducing that primary endpoint, um, and they also reduced the time to symptom resolution from 14 days for placebo to 10 days with the monoclonal antibody compound, and so this monoclonal antibody did receive EOA approval. Uh, in the summer of 2021, that EUA was modified to uh, reflect the lower dose, the 1200 milligram, as well as uh, uh, state that it's okay to give uh, the lower dose subcutaneously as opposed to IV. Um, And this is really important in places that IV is not uh, feasible or that would delay treatment. Again, this is unlikely to be effective against Omicron and is currently not being distributed uh, because of Omicron. But we are left with satorvimab. So satorvimab does have activity against Omicron. This is the monoclonal antibody that is being distributed uh, by the CDC and the FDA to various states uh, for uh, administration to our patients with Uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, received an EUA in May 2021 uh, based off of the interim results from a phase three trial of around 580 high-risk patients, again over 50% with obesity, a diverse population with 63% Latinx and 7% Black, Uh, the outcome being hospitalization or death within 28 days of receipt of product, Um, and the Satorvimab was demonstrated uh, 85% efficacy at reducing hospitalization or death. It was 7% in the placebo arm and 0.8% in the satorvimab arm. Um, what's interesting, this antibody, the uh, uh, company that manufactures this, also looked at the potential mechanisms for how these antibodies are working. And the two hypothesized mechanisms are blocking a viral entry into cells uh, and clearing infected cells from circulation, both of which, Reduce the viral burden, um, thus reducing uh, the progression of the infection and the development of the more severe uh, symptoms. And as Dr. Sappho mentioned, there's that early phase, but also a secondary phase that occurs maybe about five to seven days after the symptoms begin with SARS CoV 2. Um, and in this study, uh, the uh, Data Safety Monitoring Board actually converted the placebo arm uh, to uh, an intervention arm because of the lack of efficacy of the placebo. It's being studied with other monoclonal antibodies to see if there's enhanced activity, especially enhanced activity against different variants, and the satorvimab is recommended for Omicron and is what we're giving our patients uh, currently. So not only do we have uh, some of these studies that are the clinical trials, And many of us think those are the gold standard for showing that uh, therapy is effective, but they also are highly controlled and patients may be, uh, very specific uh, uh, fit very specific parameters and sometimes may not mirror what our experiences are in the clinic um, and there have been a few studies demonstrating the real world experience with these monoclonal antibodies and how effective they can be this is a one uh, one of those studies uh, here on this slide this is a single center cohort study uh, from february 2021 that was published in open forum infectious disease at an urban center center with a population of about half a million, about 56% of the uh, individuals in this uh, population were non-white, 23% um, um, uh, had a lower uh, poverty rate. Um, the patient looked at uh, individuals with COVID-19 who visited an outpatient clinic or medical center, around 600 patients, uh, 39% Hispanic were um, uh, seen in this population, 45% were eligible for or received monoclonal antibodies, and they were compared to a historic control um, that uh, did not receive monoclonal antibodies and was, it was obtained from a population before the monoclonals were even available. Um, there were no differences in gender, race, ethnicity uh, between the treated and untreated arms. And what this study showed was that there was um, a reduction in ED visitor hospitalization within 30 days in those that received the monoclonal antibody versus those that did not. So 12% in those that were untreated and 1.9% Uh, in those that were treated. And when adjusting for age, gender, comorbidity, uh, the risk of ED visit or hospitalization was 82% lower in patients who received monoclonal antibodies. It should be noted, and and an interesting uh, fact of this study, as well as some of the other studies with real-world experience, there were higher rates of medical visits in the untreated group uh, than in the clinical trial for bamlanivimab that was in the uh, placebo arm. So, potentially altering these results, but I think more reflecting our real-world world experiences and our clinical experiences with these antibodies. Um, so, when thinking about monoclonal antibodies, um, as I mentioned earlier, we have to think about these as antivirals, and the key uh, is to get uh, individuals into treatment as soon as possible. So, the earlier after onset of symptoms, the better, um, and uh, hopefully if you're using testing Uh, to get people into therapy, Um, you try to get them tested as soon as possible so they can qualify for the monoclonal antibodies. Um, The EUAs uh, for these antibodies uh, are for outpatients only. Um, specifically those at high risk for COVID complications, uh, 12 years or older, with the exception of bamlanivimab adesivimab, which is for all ages within 10 days of onset of symptoms. You wanna monitor individuals after administration of this product, and you wanna have access to uh, emergency medical uh, services if a complication or reaction should arise. Um, When looking at those individuals that fall into those high-risk groups, very similar to what Dr. Sappho had talked to us about, those with conditions that put them at risk, older age, multiple medical conditions, uh, pregnancy, uh, obesity, and these factors change uh, periodically, so uh, I would definitely recommend keeping up with the uh, CDC and FDA recommendations on who falls into that high-risk category. One last uh, aspect with these antibodies is pre-exposure pro- prophylaxis. So this is a texagavimab, uh, silgavimab uh, combination antibody um, that was studied pre-Omicron in about 5,000 unvaccinated patients um, to see if it could prevent the development of infection. So given passive immunity to these individuals. And what was found was that there was a 77% reduction in symptomatic COVID-19 and a 77% uh, reduction for symptomatic COVID-19 or all-cause death in those that receive this antibody versus those that uh, receive uh, placebo. And this effect lasted for about six months. And there was an EUA that was uh, recommended uh, or put forth by the FDA in December 2021 for this product to be used in anyone 12 years or older expected to have an inadequate uh, response to vaccine or history of reaction to vaccine, and they cannot receive the vaccine, and it's not indicated for treatment or post-exposure prophylaxis. This is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So with that, we'll return to our cases. And so, um, uh, Dr. Sappho, I'll kind of turn uh, Bob over to you. So Bob, our 70-year-old with lung cancer who comes in with upper respiratory viral uh, symptoms, it's tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. What are your approach to this, or how do you approach treating this, and what are you going to do for this, gentleman?
2: So it matters that we, we have Bob in giving how high risk that he is. Um, it matters that we understand two things about him. One is his clinical risk of severity if, if we allow COVID to kind of progress, and we can tell with active uh, cancer that is being treated with radiation and chemotherapy. He is someone who is very, very high risk. It also matters that we understand from Bob how long he is into his course. And so we said here that it's about a two days uh, duration. We've been able to confirm it with PCR that he does indeed have COVID. And so there's two factors here that we have to think about for Bob is one, that he is someone who could have very severe disease if we don't intervene. And two, that timing really matters. He's early on in his course. And so when I see patients like this in my outpatient clinic, um, you know, I really activate our protocols right away. And there's two things that we can kind of go to, and I think you really touched upon them nicely. One is monoclonal antibodies, trovermab, and you've made the point that we had, an, you know, we had a real kind of repository before, and now we have really only one, which is cetrovimab. That That kind of decrease means that in my hospital system, we have to check availability first before we're kind of sending patients over to the infusion center to get these. The other thing that we do have is Paxlovid, um which is you know an antiviral that we can use early on that does have as you've mentioned you know real efficacy again there is the question of supply for this and so the way that we have looked into this in our clinical system is to actually work with the department of public health who is getting the supply and then dispensing it to individuals that need it there is a a delay and a wait and so i think for bob what i would do is i would try to figure out what can i get him as fast as possible um, and and how do I kind of let him understand what he should be looking out for as his disease course progresses, whether he gets treatment or not? I want to make sure he knows when to come back to the ED, um, you know, if he continues to get worse um, with his with his COVID infection.
1: Great, and and you know, and that's I think the approach that you know many of us are trying to look at is how do we get these antibodies for. Uh, patients and how do we get them in uh, a timely manner. Um, We have the second half of our case, which is Janet, Bob's uh, sister, who has leukemia, is immune suppressed and is vaccinated. Um, And this is a patient that um, in my practice, I actually see very commonly. So I'm infectious disease uh, and I primarily take care of Uh, immune suppressed patients. And this is the type of patient. So Janet would be the type of patient that we try to give the uh, combination monoclonal antibody for uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that passive immunity. um, Unfortunately, there's a limited supply. um, And so we're working as hard as we can to identify those patients that are going to benefit and benefit right away and then start going down that list. And um, um, we've worked out a system to try to really get those patients uh, into the uh, infusion center so we can get them their antibodies. And some of the patients we consider are, like Janet presented here, leukemia on chemotherapy, immune suppression, uh, uh, agents like rituximab that are gonna really blunt that immune response uh, 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 for the patient and the vaccine may not be effective.
2: Dr. Angaroni, I think that that's really smart because I think there's a proactivity about this. You know, we're at the point in COVID where we've been so reactive. Something happens, we react to it. We've learned that we really need to be proactive. And I think having a pre-exposure prophylaxis as as one of the tools that we can use is tremendous. Um, There's the question though, and if we go to the next slide, there's this question that I think we're all faced with of like, how do we know where to find things? And so we wanted to share one tool with you all, which is the DHHS therapeutics locator that um, across different geographic areas can kind of tell you where you can find different therapeutics. It's important to note, at least I'll speak for kind of us in the East Coast, that um, our public health agencies really have the most up-to-date information. And so even more than this, going over to your local public health agency, I think will really tell you um, what's happening around what is available in your local environment. And I don't know, Dr. Angroni, if you'd have any other resources that you might suggest.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really great resource if you don't work at a center that has your own supply of these antibodies or treatments, or if you're really relying on the Department of Health to to kind of point you in the right direction of where to get your patient uh, um, these supplies, and to be in contact, I think, with your uh, Department of Public Health. I think if you're seeing a lot of patients and you really want to get them into care, Um, talking to your Department of Public Health and saying, you know, where can I send my patients to or whom um, is going to be delivering these antibodies? I think it's really important.
2: Absolutely agree. And the next slide, I think, makes a final point, which is a very, very important one, which is that while we know that we have these medications available, there is there are differences that are happening according to who has access to them. The biggest takeaway that I think both of us have tried to leave you with is that it matters that you understand the patient's uh, level of risk for progressing to severe COVID and that the patients pr- uh, present early to get these therapeutics. So what you're looking at here is our understanding actually over looking from a period of November 2020 to August 2021, of the percentage of patients who are receiving monoclonal antibodies by race. And the takeaway here, the kind of dark black line you see on the left-hand side are white patients and the others are other historically minoritized groups below there. And that difference is very, very major. It's up to about 58% for those who identify by ethnicity as Hispanic and about 20%, 20 to 25% for other racial groups. And so there are major racial differences in access to monoclonal antibodies. As we've just explained to you, monoclonal antibodies are some of the best treatments that we have to prevent uh, progression to severe COVID hospitalization and death. And so as clinicians, I know that both, I can speak for myself and Dr. Angaroni, there's a real advocacy um, point here where if you have patients that are high risk, you have to really make sure that one, they know what to do if they get COVID. Two, they can access you to tell you that they have COVID. And three, that you can advocate to get them into the places where they can get these resources. And you want to particularly look out for your patients who have some you know, social determinants of health that may disadvantage them, educational status, employment status, race or ethnicity, et cetera, because the data are showing us that there are differential rates at which we're giving these life-saving therapies. And um, Dr. Ingroni, if you would add anything else and then take us through the the, the cases as we wrap up.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a a great point. This slide is really important. You know, our study that we did with the monoclonal antibodies here uh, at Northwestern, we did a follow-up evaluation Um, of those that um, were recommended for therapy but did not receive it. And one of the major factors that we saw um, was based off of uh, ethnicity, race, and where they lived in our geographic location. And there's so many factors that play into that. And so I think really developing programs or resources on how can I get my patient to um, uh, uh, my center or the center where they need to get those antibodies infused, I think is really important as we move along with the pandemic. And so, you know, I think, you know, what Dr. Saffo mentioned with these kind of determinants of who's getting uh, these antibodies, I think it it becomes really important that burden is on all of us uh, as practitioners.
0: Thank you so much to both of you for helping us with those questions. As a reminder to our learners to submit a question for upcoming webinars, please click that Q&A button to the left of your console. We'll try to get to as many as time allows. Um, so I'm going to ask the first question, uh, which is, what do we know about the relevance of the B2 subvariant of Omicron?
2: So that's an interesting question, it, and very much like COVID, we are learning um, in real time. We understand that this particular variant probably is as um, causes as severe of a disease course as the initial B1. The difference here is that uh, B2 seems like it may be even easier to transmit. And so where that kind of brings us is um, to a a place where we're trying to understand if individuals who have already gotten Omicron, um, are they able to get it again? For individuals who haven't gotten Omicron, I would say the B2 variant or, or a subtype really tells us that you wanna make sure you're wearing very good masks and you wanna try to be doing as many kind of protective measures as you can, avoiding large crowds, et cetera, because this latest version of Omicron seems to be even more infectious than the previous version.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Our next question. Do we know anything yet about immunity acquired through infection with Omicron versus immunity required from infections with other variants?
1: So this is, I think, another really good question as well, and we're going to learn more about this as we kind of get a little bit past the Omicron surge um, uh, that we're seeing what we have learned is that uh, prior infection and vaccination or vaccination and then prior infection really kind of boost our immune system and makes our immune response a lot more robust. We expect to see that with Omicron. I don't expect to see anything uh, different with that. Um, I think what will be interesting to see, as Dr. Sappho brought up, will immunity to one Omicron lead to immunity to any subvariants of Omicron, um, or will it change the uh, infectivity of the virus? So I think it remains to be seen. If it follows what we know, we should see kind of that boosting of the immune response, uh, even with Omicron infection.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Looks like we have time for one more question. Um, so here it goes. Um, Does Omicron lead to longer lasting infectious period, seeing lots of people who remain positive on rapid antigen tests for more than 10 days?
2: So that isn't actually what we are understanding from the population level data. Um, I think what the reason why that question might be coming up is because Omicron has come to us at a time where many people are getting at-home tests, so lateral flow tests or other tests at home, where they can actually follow in serial what's happening through the course of their infection. Um, for many people, we believe that the infectious time period for Omicron is probably somewhere from five to seven days. That is not the case for everyone. And so contrary to maybe what you've heard from public health sources, the kind of best advice we can give is that if you have Omicron and it is past the five days or past the seven days, it's worth getting retested before you come out of um, you know isolation because you might still be infectious in that setting. Infectiousness, you can kind of pick up by your at home tests, which if it's still positive, we say, yes, you could probably still still could be spreading Omicron to the next person. So again, we don't think that it's so much that Omicron lasts for longer. I think you're at a time period where many people are probably testing more than they have historically um, in in previous uh, cases of of variants with COVID. Dr. Angaroni, would you add anything to that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a perfect way to look at it. Now that we're testing more, we're probably just picking up more people in that you know post symptomatic uh, phase of the uh, of the virus. And and I think we really need to get more information. But you know the information uh, and recommendations that you put forth, Doctor Sefo, I think are totally appropriate. You know, get tested at that day five to seven, and if you're still positive, you should probably. Um, maintain your isolation for 10 days.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you to both of you for answering all of those uh, valuable learner questions. Um, And to our learners, if you'd like to claim credit, please click the Claim Credit button. Uh, That will appear when the webcast ends, and be on the lookout for our 30-day survey that you will get in your email. As always, your responses will help us develop further education like this and others. And to our podcast listeners, please leave a rating and review on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds and helps us grow our reach for this very important information. For those of us joining on YouTube, please be sure to take the post-test into the description to claim CME credit. Um, Thank you, Dr. Angaroni and Dr. Safo, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.